Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. In the past four episodes, we have been looking at the man and the legend that is Alan Klein, the steps he has taken to, uh, to September 1969, where he has ne- renegotiated the EMI deal with the Beatles. And from this point on, something that we often refer to as Schrodinger's Beatles takes place, where there's a band and not a band happening at the same time. So we want to look at the steps of Alan Klein in charge that lead up to the release of the album Let It Be in May 1970. But I think we have to start, in case people haven't been listening to the last four episodes, to take stock of where Alan Klein is in this kind of September 1969 place. So he's done the main job that everyone wanted him to do, which was to streamline Apple. Hooray! Hooray, yes, uh, he has. He's got rid of the dead wood. The leeches are gone. Yeah, um, and everything else, uh, we have had a heated debate about um, Northern Songs and NEMS, but he has reached a point of finality with them, you could say. Yes, yes. So, I mean, I think <laughs> what I would say about uh, about Apple, first of all, is he, he's done what everybody agreed had to be done you know he he's he's trimmed it all down he's got rid of the uh, uh aspects of apple specifically magic alex that were not working not producing yeah. income and drain, draining money um they've got themselves out of the nems contract uh so they had to pay more than they had been anticipating but they've got themselves out of that northern songs is lost to them but uh they have got some cash and uh, so they're all set fair for the next ten years. Well, this is the this is the thing that kind of gets announced, which is you know the Beatles are free. They're kind of free agents now. They're free of NEMS and mm. free of Northern Songs, except they're not really free of Northern Songs just yet. But that they, they you know, the way Klein sells it to the media is that uh, you know they are men now who can make their own decisions and we're getting on top of things. And by the end of nineteen sixty nine. You know, they'll be totally set up for the 70s. That's the kind of vibe I think that Klein wants to get out. Yes. Uh, Klein, I, I think Klein, it's very important to him to present that image, uh, to present that that idea that the Beatles are now free agents. Yeah. And it's it's hard to present this story without obviously knowing what happens. You know, the the retrospectoscope, as they say, gives a certain perception of how all of this played out. Because... What we know 
is that the end result is that there is no band in a way like it's it, all of this is for what purpose and i guess the schrodinger beatles notion is at which point do we know that there's no band it's really really hard to say yes i i i think that's exactly the point that we we have to look at this try and look at this without uh the, the knowing that the band is breaking up and is about to break up and without factoring in the acrimony uh, with, with, with which that happens. And I think, I think I said way back at the start of the Klein episodes, I think it's difficult. His reputation is tarnished primarily by the fact that the band broke up under his watch. So therefore he gets the blame for that. Mm. And I think there are certain points along the way. You know, if we want to go all the way back, you've got Brian and the, the deals that he was doing with the merchandising and his worries around the fact that Perhaps in October 1967, they would be terminating his management contract. And he was very uneasy about that. You've got the Yoko factor, which despite there being what I think is an overcorrection in, in Get it, get Back, uh, that's a disruptive influence. Yeah. Uh, you've got the Eastmans coming in. You've got Klein coming in. You've got George creatively striking out on his own. All of those things come and it's, it's everybody looks for a point where there's a fracture, an irreconcilable split mm. you know paul talks about liberty bell day i don't agree that that's necessarily the point but there doesn't have to necessarily be a single point at which everybody falls out it's it's no. a slow drift it's a slow drift rather than a sudden rupture i think well it's like any relationship or you know marriage or whatever that it's or or i think what hemingway said about bankruptcy it happens slowly and then all of a sudden you know it's one of those yeah. things yeah. that that kind of goes that way um but something that i find i'm coming back to and you kind of see it in these months is that klein you know he's selling himself as a business manager as a man who's going to get on top of business is he a personal manager and that's going to be a huge difference that he never seemed to i think step outside of the deal making to massage the egos or massage all four egos maybe as as he should have but maybe we should leave that there. I don't know whether you'd agree with that or not. I, I think that's fair. I think he's very much focused on John Lennon. Yeah. And uh, Fred Goodman in his book will say, you know, Alan Klein loved John Lennon. Yeah. You know, he, he admired him, he respected him, perhaps in a way that he didn't any other client he ever had yeah. up to that point or any client he had subsequently. Um, and I think that was an issue in the same way that the Eastmans being Paul's in-laws was also an issue. Yes. Um, but I think if people had paid more attention to the personal relationships and, yes, um, massaging the egos of the people in the room, yeah, uh, I think it could have been very different. So uh, in our last episode, we talked about the September 1969 deal where they raised the royalty rate. You know, this is often touted as Klein's big success story. And it, actually, in fairness, it probably is a success story. It is. I think. I think it's difficult to take any other view of of that. Um, you remember way back in sort of sixty five, Paul is throwing the Stones deal up at Brian uh, Epstein and sort of saying, "Well, why haven't you got us a deal like like this?" And Brian couldn't get the same deal in nineteen sixty seven. But um, Klein actually does manage to better that deal in his negotiations with the EMI. And if you think about the fact that the Beatles are not necessarily at a break point in their contract with EMI. You know, he's going in to renegotiate something that's already in place and there's a binding agreement and he does spectacularly well. And the other thing is he had everybody's authority to do that. 
Paul is part of this and he's quite open to this. So, um, you know, the, the, in 1971, in the affidavits, they have Klein kind of explaining that Paul was involved. I've learned that affidavit is Latin for he has declared under oath. Yes. Maybe you knew that already. But it's probably worth saying that affidavits have a certain type of um, air to them in terms of that this is not, uh, this doesn't sound like Alan Klein's uh, day-to-day speech. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, so what what he says in this affidavit in 1971, he says it was essential that a choice be made as to who should have authority to negotiate because there was uncertainty in the outside world as to whether I or John Eastman spoke for the Beatles. It was decided by all four of the Beatles that I alone should go with them and have authority to negotiate. The plaintiff otherwise known as Paul McCartney, was anxious for John Eastman to attend, but he went along with the collective decision. So Paul entrusts this negotiation to Klein, and Paul is not separately represented by the Eastmans. Uh, There is a meeting takes place on the 7th of May where everybody is there except Ringo, who's off filming uh, The Magic Christian, Yoko, uh, now Mr. Lennon's wife, according to the affidavit, Klein and three representatives of EMI, Sir Joseph Lockwood, Len Wood and Ken East. And this is the first sort of meeting that they have. And at this point, EMI is saying, well, we're not going to negotiate this. There's this whole side issue going on with names and money is, if you remember, money is being yep. locked frozen up. and not locked away. So that has to be dealt with and and. and sort of uh, resolved before EMI will get into this negotiation. And this goes back to that first week in May 1969, which ends with Paul not signing the contract in Liberty Bell 1 and 2 and all the rest. But that is one of the meetings that they are having with Paul in the room and with Paul sanctioning, um, you know, yeah, go off to EMI and shake the tree and see what happens. Yes, and the first meeting is on the 7th of May and Liberty Bell Day 2 is uh, on the 9th of May. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, this is, this, is, this is why I find it difficult to reconcile the idea that Paul is on the one hand saying to Klein, yes, you're my guy, get in there, do the negotiation, but two days later is saying, I'm not going to sign this, this contract. Yeah. Um, and if you remember, it's a contract that they've already discussed between themselves and Peter Doggett makes the point, Nobody was objecting to Klein being appointed, much less querying the 20%. So the, the, the contract that they were renegotiating was one that was signed by Brian in 1967. And we talked a little bit about this uh, in our Brian episodes, that uh, they had these kind of months at the end of 66 or 67 where essentially they were without a deal. And in reality, you know, they, they should have started their own record company then or they should have gathered control of their own masters or worked on an exclusive leaseback deal to EMI or whatever. But the deal that they sign with EMI in 67 has this uh, thing where they have to deliver 68 songs in 10 years. And that's the kind of the, the break in the armour that Klein uses to to trigger a negotiation because he says, well, they've delivered 68 songs. We're done. Yeah, yes. So between the White Album, uh, Sgt. Pepper, the singles, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they have delivered the 68 songs. Hmm. Um, one other point that I, I just want to mention in the EMI contract, because this has come up, uh, a couple of questions were asked on the Facebook group. The 25% that NAMS were getting, yes, that is dealt with in the 1967 EMI contract. It sort of sits separately. Uh, it, it's not, people were sort of raising the question, well, after Brian died, why 
How did the management contract continue? How were NEMS still entitled to the 25% after he died and after the contract expired? It was built into the, the contract with EMI. Oh, right. And that's where they were getting their money from? Yes. And okay. there is some suggestion uh, in the Brian Southall book that the Beatles didn't know that. That in 1967, when they were signing this contract with EMI, they did not know that there was a 25%, that that 25% commission, if you like, was built into that contract as opposed to sitting in their uh, management contract with Brian Epstein slash NEMS. When they're negotiating the NEMS contract, are they in a position then to negotiate that money if it's baked into another contract? Well, the point is NEMS is entitled to get this money yeah, from right. EMI. So what they were trying to do in, 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 they weren't trying to say to NEMS, you can't have that money. They were trying to buy NEMS in so that they effectively would get the 25% yeah. from EMI. And it does occur to me that that issue around did they know or did they not know, that might be the issue, the propriety issue. Mm. That, that John Eastman is alluding to when he writes to Clive Epstein and says, and then we'll be looking at the propriety of your negotiations with right. EMI. Because Brian Southall does say there is a very strong suggestion the Beatles weren't aware that the 25% was baked into the EMI hmm. con- contract. Um, so say that, that, that point had come up that we were being criticised for not explaining. I was being criticised for not expl- <laughs> explaining. I, I'm learning myself right now. <laughs> explaining how this uh, how this this happened, but essentially, uh, yes, they had delivered their 68 songs. Now EMI were arguing. Oh well, that just means they have to provide a minimum of 68 songs, and they're locked in with us until 1976. So. They're approaching it from the point of view is, well, they can't record for any other label Jeez. until 1976. Klein is sort of saying, well, we've, we've done all this. Uh, we fulfilled our obligation. And I think it's a practical thing. If you want more material from the Beatles, you, you're going to have to renegotiate. Um, and it is a spectacular deal. Um, now, it, it it's... They go to Sir Joseph Lockwood, first of all, and then, if I understand it right, he says, oh, cut the deal with capital. So does that is that just Sir Joseph Lockwood saying, get out of my way, just go negotiate with somebody else? Because it kind of turns into an American yeah. deal more so than a, a UK deal, you know, when you get the manufacturing and everything sorted out. Yes, I think it is. I think, I think, I think Lockwood just doesn't want to have to deal with Klein. Yeah. And, and again, the way the contract and the way the record industry that at that time was was divided up and was was you know you had UK you had USA and the rest of the world just like mm. it is today um, but <laughs> um, so yes he basically says look go and speak to capital you can do what you like with capital the UK deal is staying the same but go and do your deal with capital which is if you remember is a separate company but owned by EMI yes um, so EMI is the parent Company now that that was a big issue because the worldwide rights were administered through capital. So the only territory that wasn't covered by capital is the UK. Mm. So Klein is is basically given the opportunity to go and renegotiate for the rest of the world. Um, and so what does he negotiate? At the time, they are on forty cents per LP, and the the deal kind of restarts the the clock on the signature point and then ups the royalty rate. That's it. So they were they were contracted for ten years, which is due to run out at the end of uh, nineteen seventy six. So that that 
clock is restarted, so uh, it will now run until 1979. No upfront cash advance on royalties is required uh, from capital as part of this deal. And this is one of the things that in the 60s, young, inexperienced bands always fell foul of. They would Mm. get, you know, £50,000 up front and they would think, this is great. But actually it was a payment against future income. So there's no, none of that is required, but they get a better royalty rate. So it rises from 40 cents to 56 cents per LP. And after two years, it will rise again to 72 cents per LP. Subject to one caveat, the rise from 56 to 72 cents is dependent on uh, each Beatles album mm-hmm. selling half a million copies. And you think, well, that's... That's not hard. Not hard. Not yeah. hard. Um, this will become an issue in the context of sometime in New York City. Okay. <laughs> which we which will, will come back we, to. <laughs> which will not necessarily sell 500,000 copies. But anyway, um, the other aspect to this, because you remember Klein knows that John Lennon has declared his intention to him yep. in around the 13th of September that he's going to leave and has made the announcement on the 20th um, to, to the rest of the Beatles. But Klein knows that this is in the offing and he brings in solo projects and strikes a different royalty rate for solo projects. So Capital are given the option that they can designate any solo project as either being a Beatles LP at the 56 uh, cent rate or as a solo project which will attract a royalty rate of $2. Okay. Let's look at the example of the first one, which is Live Peace in Toronto. So they say, well, that's not a Beatles album. It's not going to sell well. So they have to pay the higher royalty rate, which is $2. And it sells very well. And they get, uh, the the Beatles get a huge payout from that. They get $1.65 million paid out to Apple on the strength of that, which is £28 million in today's, today's money. It, it is a lot of money, like when, when again, the retrospect, looking at this retrospectively, when you think of the, the albums that are coming down the pipe and there's a load of number one and top five albums coming down the pipe in the next two or three years, they are going to generate a lot of money for Apple. Yes, yes. Um, I suppose the idea is that each Beatles album is going to fulfil a contractual obligation. The, the, the key thing, the first payoff is Live Peace in Toronto, yeah, which sells extremely well at the higher $2 royalty rate and they get, in today's money, £28 million into the coffers, which is a huge amount of money. And you yeah. think up to this point, the solo projects have been Electronic Sound, Life with the Lions, The Wedding Album, Two Virgins, yeah. Wonderwall. These are not selling. Uh, the The other aspect of this is... Of course, Klein being Klein, he negotiates an ABCO element into this contract. Well, now this is we we talked a minute ago about you know maybe a little bit of um, a little bit of NEMS twenty five percent. Did anybody know this was part of the deal type yeah. subterfuge? And now there's a little bit of ABCO kind of double dipping as well because there's something in it for Alan. There is so under the new deal, his company ABCO will manufacture the records. Not yeah. not capital. Capital then buy them from Abco. 
Now, Klein is certainly going to get money from this, but he pitches this to the Beatles on the basis that they no longer have to rely on capital producing the sales returns. So it's mm. uh, this is one of the sort of, um, I suppose, pinch points of any record contract. It's the record label is saying, we agreed to pay you X number of dollars per record, and we will tell you how many records you've sold. Mm-hmm. And now Klein says, I'll, I'm totally trustworthy. I will know how many records we have made and sold. Exactly. We will, we collectively, the you know, me and you guys, I'm part of the gang now, we will be responsible. And this, this I think this is, you know, a re- record pressing plant is a record pressing plant. This is just a paper mm. exercise, um, e- effectively. I don't think this, it's not that Klein has a record pressing plant in the basement. Well, maybe he does have a record. <laughs> no, I, I think he's just taking it over and getting a little extra cut and selling, sell, you know, getting a, I guess there's some kind of wholesale price that he's he's, he's taking for himself as well. It, it, it is. And this will come back. But but it is, it is explicit in the, uh, in the contract. And uh, the Beatles are aware of this. Uh, it also, but it does make Klein responsible for declaring the returns of records sold, records returned, et cetera, et cetera. And this becomes an issue for Klein much later in the 70s, um, around the Bangladesh album in particular, and Mm -hmm. uh, records being dealt with as freebies or promotional copies. And and it's this that ultimately will earn him some small jail time uh in 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 later years a couple of months he gets but it's it's a bit like al capone being done for tax fraud you know (laughs) yes him doing for 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 dodgy free records yeah Um, they sign on the 20th of september 1969 paul says as we said earlier on if you're screwing us i don't see how well you know he's taking over the manufacturing and taking a cut paul that's one of the ways but anyway i put that to one side um but there's this air of well you know, do the Beatles exist? What are they going to do? And Klein kind of tips into this. It's a, it's kind of a chain of events that in some ways I think mimics what Capital were doing in the first wave of 60s Beatlemania where, you know, he thinks, well, we've got to get product out. We've got to get records out. And if we get yeah. records out, that'll generate income. And if we generate income, hooray, we can all keep buying our psychedelic Rolls Royces. Um, so it's a chain of events that kind of leads to the Let It Be album, which I think is kind of the pinnacle of that type of Alan Klein-driven release yeah. schedule. Um, but he's looking to release product, and so the first product that he puts out is the Come Together Something single, which is, um, you know, the first time properly, certainly in the UK, that they've pulled a single from an album. Yes, yes. He's, he's very keen. I think he sees the royalty settlement as being a line drawn, and now he has to convince the Beatles that he can deliver financially. And, yeah, the first thing is you release a single, and um, the first time it's ever been done. But it, it's a hit. It gives them some income. Yeah, it's not a northern song, which is interesting. Well, the, one of them is not a northern song. It's a Harry song. Yeah. Um, and uh, we did talk about it in our AA Sides episode, but it comes out six weeks after the Abbey Road album in the UK. It does not get to number one in the UK, so it, it means that the last UK number one ends with the band of John and Yoko earlier in the year, but it does generate cash. 
Um, and the other big release that he, he works on is something we discussed in a bonus episode, which is the, the Hey Jude LP, which comes out at the start of 1970, which is, uh, as we discussed on that episode, a kind of curious amalgam of previously unavailable capital um, singles. And I guess if you think about this deal as being a capital deal rather than an EMI deal, it's interesting that this compilation is kind of a capital-themed record. This is this is this is the source of income. He he identifies various sources of a potential income and goes for it in a way that I suppose doesn't sit comfortably with our notions of Apple and the the sort of utopian ideal that was being espoused here. And again, I think this is part of Klein's problem, reputational issue, is that he is doing business. Mm-hmm. but business for the Beatles. And the Beatles are not businessmen. You know, the Beatles, yeah. uh, way back in the day, in 67, in, in uh, when NAMS was still around, and there was the tax issue and all the rest of it, and they were trying to, to think about, well, how, how can we, what can we come up with as a, as a tax saving? You know, one, one of the things was a chain of shops. <laughs> Clive Epstein in particular was very keen that the Beatles would sell greeting cards. With, with right. the, you know, the Beatles would come up themselves with little kind of Hallmark style um, homilies and things. And, they would, and, and you think that it's applying a business mentality to what is an artistic and creative endeavour. And we, yeah. I think, like to think of the Beatles as being above all that. You know, it's like you two moving to uh, all their business to uh, <laughs> offshore to save tax. You know, they're damaged by that. Um well, let's do an hour on that. <laughs> you know, but that, that, that did have an issue. That did have, that did have an impact. Yeah. And particularly at this time, it's all about the counterculture and sticking it to the man. But if, on the other hand, you're seen to be trying to save tax and screwing people over compilation albums and things like that, that's, I think that's why we don't like this period, because it's a very overt collision between the artist and the businessman. But they'd got themselves into a position where they needed somebody to do something. No, you're absolutely right. And yeah, I suppose in the in the parlance of the time, it was like, oh, breadheads were kind of you yeah. know, ruining everything for everyone. But I think what the Beatles were striving towards is something that did sort of come into favour in later years, which is this notion of, well, actually, can you do ethical business? Can you actually describe, you know, what it is that you'll spend your money on and not spend your money on? And even that's a thing that Paul says to this day, you know, it was, you know, it was money that was earned through, you know, decent work and it didn't harm anyone and, you know, it was peace and love and all the rest. That's something that he is very sort of proud of that, you know, it wasn't money that he made off the back of you know, investing in arms dealers or yeah. anything like that. He's invested in music and songs and it's all positive. It's positive business. It's positive business. And I think Klein, Klein doesn't fit that. Um, so again, I think that's part of his, prob- the problem with his image to, you know, that this, yeah. this, this uh, but yeah, so he, he's, he, he then also um, identifies the big potential source of income is the fact that they've got all these get back tapes sitting around. They've got a movie that hasn't been put out. Yep. This could be huge. And everybody's fed up with it. Everybody's bored with that. No one has addressed this. So he speaks to United Artists and he gets this project. He re- reinvigorates this project. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, if, if, if you're Alan Klein and it's the last third of 1969 and you're looking around to see where is their money to be made, well, here's a movie and a batch of songs and somebody 
just needs to grab the bull by the horns and sort it out. And, you know, it's not something that they can take a break from, but we need to take a break, Stephen. Uh, And we'll be right back after this. End of part one. Intermission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So there's money on the table. There's a project called Get Back that hasn't necessarily been abandoned. It's just been very, very slow in Beatle time. You know, there have been versions of the album by Glyn Johns being pushed around. There have been rough cuts that have been looked at in the summer of 1969. So it hasn't gone away. It hasn't gone away, but no one is really pushing it forward. And Klein identifies this as a, a potentially a very lucrative uh, uh, source of source of income, so yeah, as you say, it, it, it it's been screened for all of the Beatles on the twentieth of July. Uh, Yoko was there, Linda, Patty, George's parents. There are some fantastic photos of that day. There's some amazing photos of that day, particularly Yoko and pregnant Linda having dinner together, having like a little chat, which is one of my favourite photos of the Beatle wives. But they're fantastic pics. So at, at that stage in July uh, 1969, the, the the version that was screened is about an hour longer than the version that will ultimately come out. And uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg talks about this and he, he gave an interview and said, you know, are you happy with the movie? And he went, some of it. It's hard when your stars are your producers and there were four of them. A lot I like got cut. I had to cut out half an hour of John and Yoko, really interesting stuff. And they, they asked him why. And he said, well, we had a screening. This is the July screening. They were all there. And the next day I got a call from Peter Brown to say it would probably be a good idea to cut the John and Yoko. I asked why. Let me put it this way. He said, I've had three calls this morning to say it should come out. Yeah, so, so that's kind of tricky. Um, and, and he does re-edit it. And there is another edit floating around, apparently, depending on who you read, October uh, or November time, it would probably more likely be October because, as we said in our McCartney episode, McCartney goes off to Scotland around about the 22nd of October. Um, yeah. So there probably is an edit floating around in October that Paul, George and Ringo see. That's it. So this is a very set uh, piece um, where they're going to see this and then they all go out for dinner. Uh, John isn't there, Yoko isn't there. But yeah, this I it must be sort of mid to late October. Um, and they all agree, McCartney, Harrison, Starr, they all agree it's fit for release. And they also talk about what's it going to be called. And, mm. you know, Get Back, the single has already come out. That's a little old hat. And Klein suggests, well, The Long and Winding Road or Let It Be. So Klein is suggesting we name this project after one of Paul's songs. Then they all go out for dinner. 
That would be <laughs> that would be lovely. Well, Paul George Ringo plus wives and Alan Klein go for dinner in October 1969. Yes. And again, it plays into this story, which is Paul isn't totally... No. Uh, ...you know, out of the room with Alan Klein just yet. He's probably getting into his last handful of face-to-face encounters with Klein, as we will find yeah. out in a sec. But he's still... You know, he has signed this thing in Klein's presence, uh, the EMI deal in September. It's now October. He's having meetings with Klein. You know, there's, a, there's an edit of the movie that seems to be working out for everybody. But there's also the question of the music. Yeah, I think at this dinner he is, Paul is literally probably having his cake and eating it. Too. <laughs> yes. You know, he, he's, 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 but Klein, they're talking about the film, obviously, uh, the naming of it. And they also talk about the LP, the tapes, and Klein pitches Phil Spector. So this, I think, is the first occasion on which Phil Spector's name comes up. Klein says, John has already expressed a preference for Spectre. The other person who was potentially in the frame was James Garrico of Chicago fame, um, yes. who was apparently pitched by Lee Eastman. I don't know why, how, no. what the connection there was. Perhaps there was a business connection. But Spectre's name comes up. Well, James Garrico had had a kind of a, a reasonably successful year. He, the, the first Chicago album had come out mm. about April 1969, sold a couple of million. He'd also produced um, the second album from Blood, Sweat and Tears that came out in yeah. January 1969. So these were kind of woody, proggy, popular albums of, of 1969 in a way. I could never decide whether Chicago were any good or not. I don't know whether you have an opinion I, on that. I, I, I don't really. No, they're not a band that's on my uh, yeah. radar yeah, anyway. at all. Uh, anyway, but yeah, you think, well, the one name that doesn't seem to come up is George Martin. <laughs> George Martin, yeah, yeah, and who, who would know the material pretty well, and um, yeah, but this, this, this is the seed or the germ of the idea for for Spil- Phil Spector. And just once again, let's check who's in the room. Yep, Paul McCartney's in the room when yeah. Phil Spector's name is uh, is mentioned. And as you say, John has you know got a separate kind of uh, connection to Alan Klein when it comes to decision making. So. John is all right with that. John's all right with this. And, uh, you know, Ken Womack in his book Solid State, he says, while McCartney may not have been sold on the idea yet, he readily agreed to meet with Spectre to discuss the project further. And uh, Klein will say in his affidavit, you know, they were all enthusiastic. And uh, Pete Doggett points out, you know, that they, they all had met Spectre before. And yeah. they were all very, enthusi- they're all very keen on what, what, what he had done as a producer, you know? Well, you know, again, stand in 1969, stand in October 1969 and think of Phil Spector's body of work at that point in time. And, you know, if if you're a, a Beatle, chances are Phil Spector has made some records that you love and you're perhaps not totally plugged into some of his, how you say, eccentricities, um, so to speak. <laughs> so um, even though they, they have sort of seen him kind of go slightly crazy on a plane at one point. Yes, there's a very funny uh, uh, story from Ringo in Anthology. And uh, they talk, first of all, about they, they meet him uh, when they're all living in a flat in, in, in Green Street. And uh, they, they meet him at a party. and uh, But then they meet him again on their first flight to America. So Spectre is there at that key moment when they're flying to America. And um, 
Ringo says an anthology. He's mad as a hatter. And this was before Spectre had actually killed anybody. Uh, the first time I met Phil, we were all on a plane going to New York. And that's when we realised how crazy he was because he walked to America. He was so nervous of flying, he couldn't sit down. So he watched him walk up and down the length of the plane the whole way. Yeah, um, and Paul also talks about him in anthology. We met a few people through Phil Spector, the Ronettes, which was exciting, and others such as Jackie DeShannon and Diana Ross and the rest of the Supremes, people we admired, all the people who were coming up as we were coming up. It was a matey sort of thing. So he's kind of in the club. He's got a bit of respect. He's got a bit of cachet. Um, and he's had a, he's had a, you know, his 60s have ended kind of curiously, like a, a um, River Deep Mountain High has kind of, sucked the life force out of him and he's kind of looking for a second act is is kind of where he's at in 69. Yes, so it's a bit like, uh, you know, it's a bit like the Beach Boys. Suddenly they find, he finds himself more popular in the UK than in the US. And, you you know, Riverdeep Mountain High is is effectively a flop Um, and uh, in in the States. And um, he's out of work, essentially. And George mentioned this, and he says, I think that Phil Spector approached Klein and was trying to get some work or somehow was hanging out with Klein. I think Klein suggested to us we should get Phil Spector to come and listen to the tapes. Phil Spector made the kind of records that I like, the wall-to-wall sound. I was a big fan of his. I was all for the idea of getting Phil involved. Also, he'd been through a bad patch. He'd given up making music, and I think he was trying to get back into it. I saw it as a way of helping him back on his feet, which is lovely. (laughs) <laughs> Lovely. Well, as you know, uh, the late great Ronnie Spector, I went to see her in December uh, 2019 and she had a small segment of her, you know, show where she would, you know, she had some slides and she would talk about meeting the Beatles and hanging out with the Beatles and how cute they were and, you know, that whole avenue and that connection as well. So there is a connection and that's something, you know, I mentioned cachet, but that is something that's important to the Beatles, that somebody has an in or that somebody has a kind of a tacit approval of the group. And so Spectre kind of ticks those boxes. Yeah, he 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 fits the bill. And the other thing is, this is effectively the Threedles carrying on business <laughs> yes. as usual. John has said, you know, a month before, I want a divorce, I'm leaving, that's it. And then the next thing, the other three are all out for dinner, having a lovely time, you know, chatting with Klein and agreeing to bring... Uh, Phil Spector. The fun fact is this is actually the last time that Paul was in a face-to-face meeting in a room uh, with with Klein, um, apart from being in court. Um, (laughs) Because obviously... This is before the phone call, isn't it? And the phone call is the thing that puts Paul off Klein forever? I I think this is the phone call incident. So the story is that Klein is in a meeting with the Apple staff and uh, somebody comes in and says, Paul McCartney's on the phone for you, Alan. Mr. Klein, and uh, Mr. Klein says, tell him I'll call him back. And this, the person goes off and says to Paul McCartney, Mr. Klein will call you back. And Paul says, you know, I, I need to speak to Alan Klein, relay the message, tell him I'll call him back. And Paul says, if he doesn't come to the phone, he will never hear from me again. And Klein says, tell him I'll call him back. And Paul True to his word, doesn't speak to him again. again. Well, he also, as we said, goes off to Scotland at the end of October and he's there till about Christmas time. And in our McCartney episode, you can decide he has a very swift number of weeks of depression and upset about the Beatles being split, which is curious since the week before he's having a meeting about planning the next album and and movie. But... um, 
he comes back at Christmas time and I, I guess Scotland does put a bit of clear blue water between himself and Apple and London and Klein and you know there whatever happens in Scotland he's certainly thinking about doing something other and trying to yeah. he put, he starts putting himself apart that's probably the thing that puts himself more apart yes i think we we had established or we had decided in in the mccartney episode that this is not necessarily where he decides he's going to put out a commercial solo album but he's certainly you know starting to work on on songs he's got his his four track uh, together, but the big thing is yes, he is now absenting himself from yeah. Apple. He's not going into the office. He's not making or taking calls. He sends his lawyer mm. to to, um, to meetings because the other three joke with the lawyer about um, you know, have you brought your bass guitar and this sort of thing. <laughs> so it's it's a very odd situation. But Paul basically absents himself from Apple, and he had been the prime mover in Apple in the early days. And, but the key point is that Paul, George and Ringo agreed to meet with Spectre, to look at him, to produce the tapes, to rename the project after a Paul song at Klein's instigation. And um, I, I, I guess Paul, George and Ringo, they just didn't know that they could get Jeff Lynne. They hadn't really thought about that back in 1969. But Probably you know. not. Probably not. Uh, the move, oh, how good would that have been if Jeff Lynne had... Jeff Lynn actually, you know, done a 1969 production job. That'd be great. If Jeff Lynn had been at the next table in that restaurant and said, sorry, guys, um, (laughs) takes off his dark glasses and they go, hey, it's Jeff Lynn. And uh, when did did Jeff Lynn get his glasses soldered to his face? I think it's around 76, 77. There's still some 76 appearances where you can see his... He's he's obviously a fantastic man, Jeff Lynne, but very baggy eyes, very baggy. Oh, is that know? is that why it is? That would I, th- I if if you look at old photos of Jeff Lynne, it's it's um, you know I think I think that he's doing himself a favor. He's got a good luck. He's going with it anyway. Um, I think that's Jeff's first appearance in season six. Hey, Jeff. Anyway, <laughs> there is this truce that kind of happens then while Paul is away towards the end of um, nineteen sixty nine. So if we kind of do a checklist of who's doing what. Um, John is kind of doing his peace campaigning so he's playing the Lyceum and yep. you know he's um, releasing the wedding album and he thinks that he's going to play What's the New Mary Jane and You Know My Name Look Up the Number as a single uh, Paul uh, is up in Scotland he's doing lots of dynamite weed he's playing with his tape machine but it's all very experimental and he hasn't done any proper songs and he hasn't actually recorded anything in Scotland he comes back and records them in London uh, George is gigging on the roads with Delaney and Bonnie um, and he's thinking about, you know, Friar Park and his future in Friar Park, which is coming on the stream. They're all setting themselves up for that. They're all setting themselves up. He, he's packing up his joysticks and... Yeah, and his nice motors. His nice motors and, and, and moving out to the country, yeah. And again, go listen to our episode on Beatles Houses on ACAS Plus. And Ringo is... Um, well, he's just being an all-round entertainer, isn't he? Bless. He, he is. He's uh, lip-syncing Octopus's Garden on the George Martin TV special. And he's gearing up to record Sentimental Journey. What more could you want? Um, Derek Taylor is being Derek Taylor and Alan Klein is in control. That's yes. kind of where we're at at That's the end of much 1969. Um, there is a... One of the very first things we talked about uh, on Nothing Is Real was this January 1970 session hmm. where, you know, George, Paul and Ringo go into EMI Studio 2. They spend two days there, one day working on I Me Mine from scratch and another day working on Let It Be for a single. So... 
<clears throat> there's obviously discussions afoot that Let It Be is a single, and that has been decided, and the Beatles decide to arrange a recording session to make it a single. Um, but one of the things that's kind of come to light in the last couple of weeks is this interview from Ringo Starr from January 1970 as well. And this does throw... Uh, this was in a Yugoslav magazine and it's been translated back to English. And this again shows this notion of January 1970. Certainly nobody had told Ringo that the Beatles were over. No, no. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it's here that we find that Ringo agrees with your phrase Schrodinger's Beatles. So this is this is this is uh, not translated from the Yugoslav by me. I hasten to add, <laughs> but yeah, this is this is a magazine called the Herald on Wednesday, uh, and it came out on the first of April. It's again a key date that we'll come on to. There's a long introduction, but he remarks on the fact that Apple has changed, that it has stopped being. It, it's he he says it's now business like. Whereas before it was uh, just a cool place to hang out, uh, you know, if you were a, a yeah. journalist. And again, but, nothing, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it being businesslike. But in nope. 1969, 1970 take, it's like, oh man, a bunch of squares. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So he, he says, um, he's talking to Ringo and he said, you, you say, whilst we were the Beatles, why do you and Lennon use the past tense when talking about yourself and the Beatles after all? You're still the Beatles, aren't you? <clears throat> and Ringo says, of course we are. And yet we're not. There you go. Schrodinger's Beatles. Perfect. Schrodinger's Beatles existing and not existing at the same time. We're not in the old sense. When we say that we were the Beatles then, we mean those Beatles who raced around the world and performed in front of audiences. The Beatle mop tops, howlers in that sense. We mean the young Beatles, the green Beatles, the red faced Beatles. Um, and Constantine then says, uh, but you were still inseparable after you stopped touring, at least for some time you lived close to each other like neighbours. Today there's no more of that. And Ringo says, yeah, today there's none of that really. I repeat, we got married, started families, widened our interests that are not always exactly the same. It's one thing to keep four guys together. Even if each has a steady girlfriend, it's another to bring together four men who are already approaching middle age. Approaching middle, <laughs> middle age. age. They're in their 20s. <laughs> yeah. And even more uh, their wives and their children. But we are still connected and not just because of business, so to speak. Yeah. And then he says the end of the million dollar question, which is the, the journalist Miles. So the rumours about the breakup of the band are unfounded. And Ringo says, not only unfounded, but absurd too. We can do all kinds of outside activities. I, for example, am performing a bit in films as an actor. John is leading the fight for world peace and organising exhibitions. So... He's saying, you know, what's curious about the interview is that Ringo obviously knows that there is a past tense version of the Beatles, which is screaming mop tops, back of vans, you know, world gathering. And I guess what he's potentially articulating is, well, we're at this kind of crossroads. Um, I don't see us not being Beatles. There's just going to be a different type of Beatles without really knowing that the different type of Beatles is a split up Beatles. But it's kind of acknowledgement that there's a there's a they're at an inflection point, so to speak. I think so. Uh, it's very explicit that he's saying, well, we are all doing different things, but we can do different things and still be Beatles. And that's a sort of idea that George will echo in subsequent interviews where he says, yeah, well, there's no reason why we can't go and do our own albums and then come back together again, you know, once a year or once every two years and we can do a Beatles album. And the thing is, that is now a model for a lot of bands. Radio, yeah. Radiohead, you know. Radiohead are a perfect example, yeah. yeah. Uh, where they are, they're they're touring. Two of them are touring as a separate band right now, as we speak. Um, but again, there were so many things that the Beatles stepped into that they didn't really have the language, or there wasn't really the cultural experience yeah. to 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 manage uh, going forwards. Um, so, one thing that probably is worth acknowledging is 
this kind of crossover border between the 60s and the 70s, it has always struck me as kind of poetic that the Beatles really didn't make it into the 70s. They get this Mm. one session right at the start of the 70s, but they kind of become totemic eventually as the 60s, uh, as a thing that represents the 60s. I have no doubt uh, if humans are around in 200 years' time that, you know, the 60s will be reduced to a little picture of the Beatles, you know, in history books. Um, And, you know, the the Beatles uh, monthly book kind of ceases publication in December 1969. There's this kind of end of the 60s thing. You know, there's documentaries about John as being man of the decade. And, you you know, it's it's this natural thing at the end of a decade to kind of look back and say, well, what does it all mean? And the Beatles would be top of that list. And I always wondered, is there a little bit of a subconscious thing that kicked into them in in the 70s saying, well, we're not going to be the band of the 70s? Was that one of the very slow things that made them dissolve or was it just you know another factor that maybe i'm reading too much into it but you know what i'm getting at no i think i I think that's fair i think that's fair comment when you think of the beatles you instinctively i think see the ed sullivan show or you think 65 66 yeah or you know all you need is love and all that kind of stuff yeah there's all these kind of moments and you know ringo is describing being at this kind of crossroads point and he's he's actually when you tear it apart, he's quite clear to say, well, you know, we've done all these things, yeah, and we're going to have to do something else. Uh, I think the one thing that the one thing that informs their entire career is that they don't repeat themselves. Yeah, so they're constantly driving forward, and you think they've got to the point they've done so much um, in a six or seven year period. What yeah. else is there for them? To do, you know, arguably everything that comes later in the seventies, all music that that appears in the nineteen seventies, uh, is is based on what they've done in the sixties. Yeah, it's 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 really striking. So, but there's still Beatle business in this first weekend of nineteen seventy, the third and fourth in Abbey Road. George, Paul, Ringo, Jeff, Lee, I mean uh, George Martin, and uh, this is you know we we say it's the year nineteen seventy. It's actually the year one, isn't it? It is year one AP. The year one AP uh, after peace, which was John and Yoko's idea, was to rename 1970 year one after. So what? It's year 52 after peace. Going pretty well, I'd say. It's going it, well so far. <laughs> nothing but peace as far as I can see. Um, but they are two days in Abbey Road, uh, good old Studio 2. They record I Me Mine from scratch. John is in Denmark. Um, and people are explaining to him concepts about karma and instant karma. And um, good old Paul and Georgia rewriting I Me Mine, you know, like the old days. One of the most interesting things, uh, and in a way telling things about Get Back, is that sequence, 7th of January, George writes this, comes in the next day and says, yes. I've got this song, I, I've, it's called I Me Mine, should I sing it to you? I don't, I don't care if you don't want it, I don't give a shit about it, I don't give a fuck if it's going in the musical. Uh, the you know. musical is so derogatory, it's so snide. And it's just, they're kind of, John is ignoring him and saying, we don't do waltzes, except for all, all the waltzes that they've done previously, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, that little dance sequence where they're playing it and John and Yoko, I've always seen that as sarcastic dancing. Yeah. You know, that isn't, that isn't supportive dancing. Um, but, but yeah, at this point, Paul is, is saying, uh, you know, think of, think of the beep beep harmony from Drive My Car, I, me, me, mine, and they're, they're working. So this is, this is arguably the, the sort of, because the middle section yeah. Is, is is Paul's. This is a Harrison McCartney co-write, just like uh, Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, now that, that needs a bit of pulling apart, that uh, 
Isn't isn't in George George's idea was ah look at all the lonely people yeah isn't that it? which is the yeah. hook that's the hook <laughs> yeah but he was just he was just helping out it's just yeah. like doing a solo I guess or you know? or um, you know and I love her those those kind of co-writes but uh, anyway, uh, anyway 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 um, but they there's also a bit of jamming that goes on that weekend there's a there's a there's a jam session and if you listen to it yes. there's these little segments which feature to my ears the piano run from Maybe I'm Amazed. That bit, um, which I I, 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 the, the, I only noticed, I don't know how long they've been out there, but I only heard it for the first time about a year or two ago. It's a pretty wild thing, and I thought it would appear on the the uh, the Let It Be box set, but of course, why would anything course, good appear why would on, anything the, Let it be box on the, dis- the disappointment box? Uh, yeah. yeah, so, uh, you know, they, they, they are clearly working very fast, they're working very collaboratively, the three of them. Uh, the version that they do is tiny, short, you know, 1 minute 30, 1 minute 34 is the version. It appears on Anthology 3 together with the little announcement that they do, which is, again, yeah. quite, you know, telling. It's kind of, are they being funny? Are they being serious? You'd all have read that Dave D is no longer with us, but Mickey and Titch and I would just like to carry on the good work that's always gone down in number two. And, and Paul goes, "What Dozy says goes for me and Titch." But they're 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 having fun. They're working together, and you think, "Yeah." Paul had just said, "Hey, while we're here, I have this idea for a song," and he plays them. Maybe I'm amazed. If that had happened, imagine if that had happened. I mean, we we don't we know that doesn't happen, but was maybe I'm amazed knocking around his head at that time? It must have been. We, we've hypothesised about the Maybe I'm Amazed Instant Karma Beatles double A side that comes out in spring 1970. Oh. Well, that's it. John, uh, John, John comes back, hears it and thinks, perfect, double A side, let's go. And I've got this song I wrote in Denmark. and, and uh... Oh, well, oh, well. The, the, the last session is the following day. And, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that this is a business as usual session with um, Paul, George, Ringo, George Martin readying Let It Be as a single. So Let It Be is on the cards so there's a brand new Beatles song coming out as a single and what we'll touch upon in a second is how unfinished the associated album is but Mm. there's a single coming out this has been earmarked as the single and you know the thing that's worth pointing out about this session is that this sets a precedent for taking this material from January 1969 and throwing a producer and some overdubs at it and the producer is George Martin and the overdubs are trumpets trombones tenor saxophones all that kind of stuff so the live as nature intended notion of get back and all those songs is thrown out the window. You know, it starts here with loads of female backing vocals as well, because female backing vocals will turn out to be a problem. It will be singing ladies. Yes. Singing ladies. You know, Paul apparently changes his mind later about singing ladies, but singing on this is Linda McCartney. She's throwing in some backing vocals. Um, Maybe Mary Hopkins. What's the status of that? There's no maybe about this. This is Mary. <laughs> Mary Hopkins is is singing. She she was okay. in the studio doing it. I think her own session, and she gets quite annoyed about this. I think um, she said, "Oh, people, you know, people say I left before this session started, but I, I, you know, didn't, and I was there, and I sing on this, and I, I'm absolutely happy." Mary Hopkins is Mary Hopkins. She wouldn't lie about a thing like that. <laughs> No, she wouldn't. She also doesn't give interviews, which is a pity. But anyway, no. Um, so but, they, they. But the other, uh, the other, the other interesting thing about this yeah. is they wipe John's bass part. And, good. And yes, good, absolutely. <laughs> and, and Paul replaces it. So again, that that's easily done. Easily done. If you mm-hmm. want to replace a bass part. Yes. Yes. Exactly. You can fix it if you want. Um, 
So that's their two days of work. Again, we're not exactly sure what is going on in the back of Paul's mind about whether he thinks, is there any kind of acknowledgement that this is their last session as the Beatles? It, you know, it's not necessarily a given. Schrodinger's Beatles, that's where we're at. Schrodinger's Beatles, uh, as you say, I think we, we certainly I, I feel it doesn't come to an end until John's appearance on Top of the Pops uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the next month. It doesn't, doesn't not that it comes to an end, but it doesn't crystallise in Paul's mind that John is serious or was serious about uh, his divorce statement. They're still, you know, again, here are the Threatles. They're yep. in the studio uh, and, and they're working away business as usual. And what happens on January the 5th is that Glyn Johns puts together a new version of Get Back. So once again, keep in mind, Get Back is still a project. Glyn Johns is still at the reins for probably the last day. But yeah. on January the 5th, he puts together, because now I Me Mine is in the can and, uh, you know, we've got Let It Be kind of tidied up a little bit as well. He puts together a new run through of Get Back uh, as an album because that's the job he's been trying to do for the previous 11 months. Yes. And I, w- what he's doing is producing a soundtrack. You know, mm. I think I think uh, this was what Glyn Johns was doing. And uh, the only thing he ever did, I think, was to try and put something together which complemented the film. And was more reflective of the soundtrack to the film. I mean, it's short of actually just uh, dubbing the soundtrack and putting it out as as a record. This is as close as you're going to get to the idea of a an actual film soundtrack. So he's, uh, you know, fading out songs across the universe and putting in little bits of dialogue and fading it through into Get Back. And uh, it's not. I don't like it, but mm-hmm. I think uh, the reason why I don't like it is probably because I do quite like that it be the album. Yeah, I, I think I think he is repeatedly approaching it with a specific mindset, mm. as you say, where, um, yeah, short of just putting a, a microphone up to the film and releasing a recording of that, and or short of, you know, I, I don't think an audience in 1969, 70 would have wanted the entire rooftop gig because songs are repeated and all the rest. We're used to that now, but yeah. I don't think that would have been a side of the album. But I think that's what he was trying to, to do, and he bought into the let's not adorn it and let's keep it rough and ready um but i think some of his mixes were not they were a bit kind of um there's a lot of space in them you know yeah yeah they're 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 rough and they 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 they're designed i think he's he's not trying to to make a finished studio album in, in any traditional sense so i'm not knocking it in the sense that i think he was fulfilling the brief yeah but i think the Beatles had moved on and this was no longer the brief. And the fact that Paul is redubbing bass parts and overseeing uh, string arrangements and brass parts and, and backing vocals on Let It Be, uh, that indicates the brief has changed. And, yeah. um, you know, Let It Be and I Me Mine are much more polished than, yeah. than the rest of the stuff that appears around them on the Glyn John second mix. So, so you look at Glyn Johnson's and it's, um, you know, uh, side one, one after 909, Rocker Save the Last Dance for Me, Don't Let Me Down, Hooray, Dig a Pony, I've Got a Feeling, Get Back, Let It Be, Side Two for You, Blue, Two of Us, Maggie May, The Long and Winding Road, I Me Mine, Across the Universe and a reprise of, of Get Back. So he's taken off Teddy Boy, he's still persisting with Rocker Save the Last Dance for Me, God bless him. And, uh, you know, it's submitted to the Beatles and they're like, no, this is still quite is similar to your previous yeah. stuff and we're not really getting anywhere with this I kind of understand, I think. 
don't you? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is not. Uh, again, I think they they've moved on uh, yeah. as to what this project is, so it it no longer fits the brief. Can we check when uh, Glyn Johns is putting this together? What exactly are John and Yoko doing? Um, they they that the fifth of January they are making the announcement that they will donate all their future royalties to Peace. Do they? No. Oh, I'm quite shocked by that. Okay. Um, so we are still left in this limbo where it's, you know, January 1969, in the middle of January. Um, the Beatles exist and don't exist. Um, but there's a version of Let It Be that's coming out as a single. There's an expectation that there should be an album that goes with it. Uh, Glyn Johns has not delivered that album. Um, but uh, Alan Klein is, you know, negotiating writes with United Artists, he's tr- sees money that's going to kind of come into the bank. And right into all of this, right at the end of January, who comes? He flies in like a, like a <laughs> guardian angel, like, like a, a to savior. save the day, a savior to save the day. Cometh uh, the hour. Cometh the Phil Spector. There he goes. 27th of January, he touches down in London and um, it, it's, it's amusing what happens next. Yes, yes. So he he uh, he arrives. Uh, we know that he doesn't he doesn't like flying because he walked all the way yes. to America in 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 1964. On the flight back to London, Klein is with him on the flight, and uh, he decides not to walk to the UK this time. He just lies on the floor <laughs> the whole way in first class. Bless. It seems normal. There's a lot of lot of lot of madness going on on planes, um, and Klein is is kind of shepherding them back to London. Yes, because Phil is incredibly nervous. You know, for all <laughs> that he sees himself as the great Phil Spector, he is incredibly nervous about meeting the Beatles again and working with the Beatles. And doesn't you know he's he's had a rough couple of years in the music industry. He's definitely on the outside. You know, he's not the great hit maker that he was. So he is incredibly nervous and he immediately goes to um, uh, the studio and yep. uh, because uh, George brings him to the studio and where John is about to record Instant Karma. Now, to what extent do we know, does Phil Spector know about Instant Karma before he arrives to London. Is it really that spontaneous? Because apparently John rings up and says, I've got a monster hit here. Let's get down to the studio. Let's record it. He gets George. George brings Phil Spector. Yeah. So we assume that Phil Spector didn't know he was producing Instant Karma until he arrived. Because Instant Karma famously is a very fast song. Yeah, that seems that seems genuinely to be the case. And we have Klaus Vormann's testimony uh, at the time to say, you know, he didn't know who Phil Spector was. It was just this little man uh, in the back <laughs> of the studio that wasn't really saying anything or wasn't really doing anything. George talks about having to say to him, you know, you're Phil Spector. Come on, get in there and produce it. And, um, you know, John just basically says, but yeah, I want that kind of just give me some Phil Spector. I want that big, big echoey sound that wall of sound thing uh so yeah he just seems to arrive and be dropped into the middle of this uh this session which is incredible if you think about it 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 is incredible and as as far as auditions go it's a pretty good audition i mean instant karma is a faultless song it's just wonderful and and it's and it is it has got a really striking production it still sounds great to this day and i would say you know you can tell 
there are Phil Spectorisms in it, like the the drums and the echo on the drums, but it doesn't sound like a Phil Spector song from three or four years earlier. So no. if the question was, can this guy produce a hit and get a sound and work with some of the Beatles, then that day doing Instant Karma, tick, the box is ticked. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what we have here is we have had Paul, George and Ringo at that dinner say, yeah, Phil Spector, let, let's get him in. John's already saying, yeah, Phil Spector, get him in. He arrives. He's, as you say, it's practically an audition for two, mm. for two of the Beatles. Yeah. And uh, he acquits himself perfectly in the sense of what he produces, um, what, the, the finished result. And uh, it is, again, tempting to think if Ringo had been there, mm. would Ringo have been at this session? I don't see why not. I don't see. I don't see why he couldn't have been. I mean, the the late great Alan White plays the drums on, mm. on Instant Karma. Um, why was Ringo not there? Uh, well, Ringo Ringo was on the appearing in L.A. on the Rowan and Martin Laugh In. You seen that show? Priorities. Yes, I've seen Rowan and Martin, and I, I think what I would say is it's very much of its time. I was just going to say it's very much of its time, <laughs> but it gave the world and uh, principally me uh, Goldie Hawn. So <laughs> dancing in her bikini. dancing in a kind of bikini thing. So you know, it, it, it's it's not all. It's not. And all it also bad. gave us kind of Richard Nixon. Sock it to me, you know all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, it's <laughs> very. It it's it, it it is very weird. The um, it, <laughs> it's all. Uh, it, it's all available on YouTube. All these little 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 clips. Yeah. But you know, R- Ringo had played on Cold Turkey. Uh, well, yeah, there, 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 there's a reason why Ringo. I think Ringo would have been there yeah. if. If he was in town and he wasn't at Rona Martin's and also going to see Elvis, apparently, in Vegas. Yes, yes. So he, he basically he's gone to America to promote the Magic Christian. He appears on uh, Rona Martin's Laughing. And then on the 30th of January, he and Maureen fly to Vegas to see Elvis. And uh, you'll have heard or seen the TV special with Elvis, Ringo and Raquel Welsh. <laughs> uh, no. Apparently, at least one biographer is saying uh, that there was there was a mooted TV special. Uh, Raquel Wells, she's the one with the whip in the Magic Christian. Let's oh, let's I remember just that. stop a moment and think about. <laughs> now that you, now that you remember, I do recall that scene. You see, you see, it's, it's a, um, but but Ringo has said talked about this, and he said he has a pull out of the proposal because preparations were dragging on, and he says I told Elvis I couldn't wait; it was holding me up, and he could see my point. Well, I can't imagine Colonel Tom allowing, no. you know, other big stars to muscle in on an Elvis venture. But it's nice to think that, I think if any Beatle could have been hanging out with Elvis, uh, Ringo would be the one. I'm, I'm, I'm really picturing a season of, uh, you know, a month-long engagement, Ringo at the Sands in Vegas. That'd be you good. Know? Um, we probably should talk a little bit about Ringo, because even though John is readying up the world's fastest single with Instant Karma, Ringo... You know, even though he recognises he's at this crossroads, starts to put Sentimental Journey, his debut solo album, together in February as well. Like it's kind of been dribbling along for a little while. Sentimental Journey, maybe dribbling is an unfair word. <laughs> dribbling is a very pejorative uh, word. It's been uh, moseying along. Um, moseying is a moseying along. So yes, and at this point we can ask still Ringo, why no Apple Years box set? But. Yeah, in February, February really begins the sessions proper for Sentimental Journey. And I think to the extent that anybody thinks about that album, the, the assumption is it all starts in 1970. But it goes back as far as the 27th of October, 
1969. So again, around the time that they've all had this dinner with Alan Klein, and then Rego starts recording. So he records Night and Day uh, with George Martin. It's three days before Come Together uh, Mm. comes out as a single. So it's only, you know, what, four or five weeks after George, uh, after John has announced his divorce thing. So Ringo is up and running. Yeah, he's up and running, but do you know what's funny? It's that Ringo is no threat. Nobody is threatened by Ringo doing any of this. And he's no, no threat if he's making a record. He's no threat if he's in the room. He's no threat if he's out and about giving interviews. Nobody is worried about what Ringo is going to do. And in some ways, that's very nice that Ringo yep. is trusted in that way and that he's he's all for one and he's not seen as potentially being difficult but you also feel a bit sorry for him because you know he's one of the Beatles he's entitled to rattle the cage a bit now and then but nobody nobody gives a hoot that Ringo's right making a solo album no in the same way he's off doing Magic Christian uh he's doing solo things and he's saying that this is this is this idea the Beatles exist and they don't exist they get together they do stuff they come back they go solo they do other projects this is all part of part of that and you've got to kind of think if he was thinking of doing a tv special with with elvis and raquel wells that was just ringo being ringo yeah nothing to this point that any of the four are doing is a threat to the beatles until (laughs) until until you get into february and john and yoko are back 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 baby yes they've got instant karma recorded uh, in the bag so to speak they're standing on rooftops giving away hair which is you know what you'd kind what of you do, do in life um but then they go on to uh, top of the pops and record two versions of instant karma for for broadcast the knitting version and the cue card version which i'm assuming many people listening to the podcast are familiar with and it'll be essentially the first time that the world has seen john and yoko with their closely cropped shaved heads singing this kind of kick-ass rock and roll song and John's on the piano looking like a very different man in control doing it um this is potentially totally different to sentimental journey this is a threat in a way in a way in a very clear this is a clear and present danger um uh, yeah this is uh you know he's he's singing live to a backing track that uh Jeff Emmerich has mixed. It's an incredibly powerful performance. Uh, It airs the next night. It's recorded. Two versions are recorded uh, on the 11th. It it airs on the the 12th. And uh, this is the first time any member of the Beatles has appeared appeared on top of the pop since 1966. And yes, he's a new man. He's a, he doesn't look like Beatle John anymore. You know, know, the uh, Abbey Road is still in the shops. That, that sort of, mane of hair and the beard and the white suit all that is gone and he's John Lennon for the 70s and you've got to think that one person sitting at home Cavendish Avenue watching this is Paul yeah a hundred percent and it's it's as you say five months after Abbey Road this is what they might call in business parlance a proof of concept yeah where John is doing proof of concept of what a solo career looks like and I know we've touched upon this performance before and its effect on McCartney, but it's uh, you know it's a it's a statement of intent and it's a proper pop rock song and it's something it's not two virgins it's not weird it's going for the masses. Yes, this is a direct commercial threat to yeah. to the Beatles, and I think it does signal to everyone 
because it's a huge hit and it is yeah. very, very well reviewed. And uh, this signals to everybody that who knows about this? Are they together? Are they not together? Has John left? Is John leaving? He's done it. What, what, what's the situation? This is John striking out on his own. Now, I suppose we can debate, did John know he was striking out on his own? You know, um, or, or is John just doing what John does, which is this kind of spontaneous, we've got to get the song out, we've got to do this. He did it with Ballad of John and Yoko, just get the thing, you know, was arguably, was that a Beatles song? That was just him and Paul. Yeah. Does he have any, does he Does he have a grand plan that he's, he's signalling this is it? I would say no. I would say he has no grand plan. And I don't mean that in a, in a snide way. I, th- I just mean... You know, there, there's never been a grand plan, you know, there's there's never been, okay, let's plan six uh, months time, three months, six months, nine months, yeah. 12 months time. There's never been any of that. So, you know, you could argue that, you know, was there a way back in afterwards to say, okay, let's now get back and do a Beatles record, I, you know, but mm. there is the massive optics of all of this and how people perceive it. And this notion again of the Beatles in the 60s, this is now six weeks into the 70s and, oh, this is what this person is doing now. And, you know, Ringo's doing a bit of solo stuff. Paul's been tinkering around with some of his experimental solo stuff. But he, as we have postulated before, um, seems to kind of hunker down once Instant Karma hits. Well, once this hits, then he goes off, he gets into a studio proper and he records uh, every night. He records Maybe I'm Amazed. Uh, That would be something. uh, All those songs. All those songs, which are kind of, if you like, in inverted commas, proper songs and uh, <laughs> yes. not just little fragments and little experimental things. And you could see a situation where Paul puts out his experimental album at the same time as Ringo was putting out Sentimental Journey and, you know, we've got a live piece in Toronto, you've got electronic sound. None of these things would be a threat to the Beatles. But I think so much hinges on that performance. And it's, I, I agree, I don't think there's a grand plan. I, I think... A lot of what happens around this time is just a kind of blindness to the yeah. personal relationships and a blind. The people are so focused on what they are doing in the moment that they're not looking at the rest of the room. Yes. Uh, you know, no one is paying attention, or they pay attention to one other person in the room. You know, and I think it's that the most striking thing for me about Get Back is that early scene where. Paul is completely focused on John trying to work out the arrangement for Don't Let Me Down. Completely focused on doing this and is completely ignoring the fact that George is getting increasingly pissed off that he's being, you know, marginalised or John being completely unaware of the effect that Yoko is having, uh, you know, on other people in the room. And yeah, there's no plan. People are just reacting. And uh, again, it's this idea they broke up by accident. Well, you know, People weren't paying enough attention. Klein isn't. Klein isn't paying attention. He's he's more focused on. He's the, he's the business manager. Well, he he just thinks instant karma. Here's a hit record. So, you know, if you look at Valentine's Day, nineteen seventy, instant karma is on top of the pops. It's going up the charts. Paul is considering his options. Ringo is working on sentimental journey. But there's a, a Beatles single called Let It Be that's prepped and ready to come out. There is an album that does not exist. And what happens over the next three months is a ton of things happen phenomenally quickly. Um, and, and it is hard to predict with two or three weeks advance what is about to happen between Valentine's Day 1970 and the 1st of June 1970. But I think we're just going to have to discuss that 
in the next part, Stephen. Ah. Ah. <laughs> I feel, it's like a Dan Dare, you know. Will our will our heroes get off the cliff? Who knows? Who knows? Tune in next week. <laughs> yeah, tune in next week. Um, so that's where we will leave it, folks. We remain available in all the usual places. The uh, website, nothingisrealpod.com, which is your portal to uh, the Facebook group, which Stephen runs over 6,000 people, having daily numerous discussions about all things Beatley, not just to do with the podcast, but any any question you want. Um, the Twitter, at BeatlesPod, uh, Instagram, and all the other bits and pieces. And if you go onto the website, nothingisrealpod.com, there's playlists and all sorts of other podcasts that we've been on and other kind of fun things to 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 look at uh, but for now my name is jason carty my name is stephen cockcroft and this has been nothing is real thanks for listening Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST+, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.